You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So let's just read the first three verses, Psalm 126. It says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So most people consider the backdrop to this pilgrim psalm to be speaking of the return uh, from captivity in the days of exile in the Babylonian captivity and the return at that period in their history. Now notice immediately that it says it was the Lord who brought back the captive ones from Zion. Now of course we know the people themselves longed to go back to Zion but ultimately it was the Lord that ordered these events to facilitate the return. And if you look back into history and back in the Old Testament, you'll look that the Lord used a very unlikely person, a man named Cyrus. So this was a Gentile king, basically, quite a brutal man, uh, as you had to be to be a leader, a military leader particularly uh, in these days. But it was him who was used, a very unlikely person, but God still had his hand on that situation and used him to allow a way for the Jewish people to return and for the Babylonian captivity to end. Now, if you remember, a lot of people read this psalm in contrast to a later psalm that we will study, Psalm 137. I'll just read the first three verses of that psalm for you because I want you to pick up on the contrast just to express the joy that we see in this psalm with how they would have been feeling in exile. So Psalm 137 is a song that they wrote in exile. Listen to this. It says, By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So you you can just sort of sense their desperation there as they're being ridiculed and humiliated in captivity in Babylon. And their captors are taunting them, saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. So we are looking at the songs of Zion right now. And that, for me, if you think of them in that situation, you can understand a little bit more the first two uh, lines of Psalm 126. When the Lord brought the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. So that's a strong expression there. Such was the longing they had to be back in the Lord's land. They described it almost as a dream. And we understand that. We use that expression ourselves in our own language when something it's happened and it's so unbelievable and so amazing. People say, I had to pinch myself because I thought I might be sleeping and all those sorts of expressions. That's the idea that's being expressed here to them from being in exile, now being back in the Lord's presence in the Lord, in the city of Zion where the Lord dwelt. It was so good. It was so full of joy that they could hardly believe it. They thought they might be dreaming. If anything, it shows the intense desire that this people had for the Lord. And now as we read this throughout history, we said that all the pilgrims sing this on their way up to Jerusalem. And you could imagine generations after still having that feeling of coming out of exile. If you could imagine all the Israelites scattered across the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East, many of them living in very Greco-Roman cultures where their religion was not considered the, the top dog of religions. There were pagan gods, pagan practices, and they were surrounded by this thing the whole time for each and every Israelite out of the land or in the the Roman Empire at this point, they probably each had that personal feeling of exile. And then three times a year, 
They were told they had to go back up to the house of the Lord. And you could imagine them having that same sense, you know, we're dreaming, we're coming back up to the house of the Lord. The idea would have been we're coming home. And for us today, I would say we, should, we still should have that same feeling, that same desire. Now, obviously not going up to Jerusalem, we don't do that today. But in the same sense, when we come to the Lord, when we're engaged in the, in the practices of the Lord, when we're having our quiet time with the Lord, when we are just doing what we do as Christians with that boldness we have to enter the throne room of grace, it should fill us with that same awe, really, that we have. And I know that's hard to cultivate sometimes in amongst the busyness of life, but as we dwell and meditate on the character of the Lord, the privileges we have, we should keep these things fresh in our mind. It's easy to, to let them become uh, commonplace. Now, we know uh, the Bible often uses the language of captivity to speak of our salvation. Do you remember all through uh, Romans, he talks about we're, we're slaves to sin, we're in bondage to sin. He even says we're, we're in captive, uh, we're captive to sin, and it's referring, obviously, to being slaves in Egypt, is the reference there, but it equally applies, you could say, to being captive to any sort of thing. So we all understand what it is like to be captive. The Bible says we were all once held captive to sin. So what is this joy that is in their mouth? It's the joy of our salvation, really, you could say, like that. The joy of our salvation that comes when we contemplate where we were, like those Israelites sitting in Babylon, being taunted by the people around them, longing for Zion, longing for home, and now as they move back into Zion after the captivity, their hearts are just filled with joy. They think it's a dream. They're just inexpressible. It says their tongue was shouting. And our tongue with joyful shouting is the expression that it gives there. This is the same sort of feeling that we can have when we contemplate our salvation. And again, this is one of those things. If you've been a Christian for quite a long time, you maybe let this get a little more in the back of your mind than you should sometimes. You end up getting involved in the busyness of church life or church politics or the Christian world at large in the Western world as we look at these things. And sometimes that can just dull what it actually is to be a Christian. And I think it's very good for all of us to remind ourselves that sometimes the Lord calls us just to leave that stuff behind and come to the house of the Lord and be filled with this laughter and with this joy again. Now, this is such a, a great feeling that they have that it does say filled with laughter. Now, many of us, we don't, because of various movements that have swept through the church in English Christianity and American, Anglo-American Christianity, we should say, I've seen this verse be used in many out-of-context ways. Many people would say that this is referring to a sort of crazy Toronto blessing style uncontrollable laughing if you've ever seen videos of that thankfully the movement seems to have died a death now you only find it in the very extreme charismatic churches but i just don't think that's just even remotely the feeling or the expression that is going on here the laugh i see here is almost what we would call a laugh of disbelief what has happened is so unbelievable and so amazing as all these pilgrims are together they're gathering around in their circles dancing, praising, they're almost just laughing with disbelief. It's just, it's just an overflow of the expression of joy in their heart. This is not an uncontrolled Toronto-style thing. We, I think that's just an abuse of that. So that's what I would say is going on here. It's joyful shouting, praising the Lord with their tongues, with their mouths, with their bodies, with everything that they're doing at this time. The prospect of everything that awaits them, they think of what they've left behind. They've been released from captivity. God has been true to his word and he has brought them back to Zion. And this is another element that we can look at here because coming back to Zion 
proves that the Lord's promises are good. Like it says in the Bible, not one word of the Lord's good promise will fail to come to pass. And he promised that the Babylonian captivity would only last a certain amount of time and then he would bring them back. And this is, I find, quite interesting today because remember it was the Lord that brought them back and he used Cyrus to do it. Now, we have a situation today where the Lord said in 70 AD, after they rejected Jesus and the, and the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews would be scattered all over the earth. And he also promised that at one point in the future he would bring them back. And he also said he would, they would still be in unbelief when he brings them back. And then at a later date, they would have restoration and the Spirit poured out upon them. So we can see these things replay through history. This is a very Hebraic concept of prophecy, always a pattern. You see a fulfillment quite often points you to another fulfillment, which is typifying the ultimate fulfillment that comes in the end of days. And we'll see this a lot. This same prophecy is pattern is a very Jewish element that we need to, to have if we're going to understand the scriptures. Now, joyful shouting. Again, this is an overflow of just the expression of their heart, I believe. Now, we've seen this. We can understand it, let's just say, on a human level. You've seen people shout at their favorite musicians. You've seen at festivals dare I say, at sports teams. Now, I'm sort of adverse to compare the two here, if you understand, but please understand what I'm saying. I don't compare the two, they're completely different, but on a very human level, you see just the, the excitement that causes people just to blurt stuff out, just to shout and have that sort of time. I believe this is somewhat of the feeling that you could imagine all of these pilgrims here who are just finally rushing through the gates of Jerusalem. They're in the house of the Lord now. They're all together. They're with family. Everything that's going to happen now at these pilgrim festivals. And they're singing and they're shouting together. And this would be a festival. You see it all through the Psalms, singing, dancing, praising. Now, I'm not going to start dancing myself on Sunday mornings, but you know, some people might feel, find that that's a good way to express themselves before the Lord. That's, that would be great. Now... Let's ask ourselves at this point, because when I read this, I get a little, sort of makes me not uncomfortable, but sometimes when I think, well, actually, how often do I actually sort of shout for joy? I'm quite a quiet person generally, so I, I internally shout for joy, I'd say that, but, but the verses actually say you actually shout for joy, and I think, how often do we actually do that? Or let's just say not shouting for joy, let's just talk about the general disposition of being joyful, because if we look at Christians... but. If you ask non-believers, what do you know about Christians? Would they always joyful be one of them? No, yeah, wouldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. Now, we can say, if we're thinking about how we are joyful, I'm not saying that we plaster a fake smile on our face and just sort of wander around pretending to be joyful. But as a disposition, we've talked about joy a lot as we've gone through Philippians, haven't we? We need to think about what it actually is to be a joyful Christian. And it means where, where are we drawing our joy from? Circumstances or from the Lord? And this is something that can be done or is available to us through all the ups and downs of life. And again, it's not saying that you're going to go through bad circumstances always absolutely joyful. That's just the Bible gives you too many other passages that talks about times when you're going to be down, you're going to be low, and you're going to be weeping, and these sorts of things. So I would say the joy that we're looking at here is the joy of being in the presence of the Lord. It's coming back to Zion, isn't it? That's what we're looking at here. And that is available to all of us as we sit, as we meditate, as we come together as a church family, as we do all these things that we do, we come to the Lord in Zion. Now, let's look at the next verse 
It says, then our mouth, uh, then they said among the nations, that's the end of verse 2, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. Now such was this remarkable delivery, this is the return from Babylon, that the nations around the Lord, even these, these Gentile nations around Israel, saw what the Lord had done, and they, they even acknowledged the Lord has done great things. They saw that God was using Israel, even in their failure, in their captivity, but yet he was still bringing glory to his name by bringing them back at this time. And this is one of the purposes of Israel. Now, I would say this will happen again in the future, but often when people hear a positive theology of Israel, they get a little offended. Often the comments that I've often had are, they're implying that we're saying Israel is better than the church or that Jewish people are better than Gentile people. Um, And all these kind of misunderstandings, I I slightly understand where they're coming from. They see maybe it's a bit unfair that that they messed up and they still get this opportunity. However, all of those, I would say, are side issues that are actually not related to the subject of Israel. That was never the point. We know that God didn't choose them because they were any better than any other people. God chose them because he chose them. He set them apart for his purposes to bring him glory. He uses them when they're in sin and he uses them for judgment. He uses them when they're praising him for his glory. In the future, again, God will make known his name through his people and it will involve judgment and it will involve repentance and it will involve restoration. Look at Ezekiel 39, verses 7 to 9. Very famous uh, prophecy passages. He says, My holy name... I will make known in the midst of my people, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord. That is the day of which I have spoken. The nations will know that I am the Lord through my dealings with the nation of Israel in the future. You see, That is some of the glorious stuff that we'll be studying over the next uh, few months. We'll break down this, but it is just a reminder to us all that the Lord has his purposes. The Lord will have his glory regardless. The Lord does not give his glory to another. And one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the earth. Remember that verse in Habakkuk. That is what is happening one day. That is where we're leading towards. Now, I'd say this can also hit us on a personal level. You see, the nations are looking at Israel and saying the Lord has done great things. And we've all got testimonies in our own lives of the Lord doing great things in our lives, whether it's just simply saving us or or delivering us or doing what it may be in our own lives. Is that a great testimony? Are, Are people looking at what God has done in our lives and saying the Lord has done great things? This is the power of personal testimony. I love listening to people's testimonies. I love reading biography books of amazing testimonies, I find them an extremely powerful way of witnessing and of hearing the great things that the Lord has done. We always have that with the story of this church. When I tell this to outside people, they always, they're always just like, wow, that's quite, that's quite amazing when you tie up all the, the different strands that the Lord was working at that time. Now, this is why it says we are always exhorted to tell of the great works of God, to tell what he's done in our lives. This is a, this is a command for us to evangelize you could say but I think more specifically through saying what the Lord has done telling of his great works in your life in the life of the church in the life of nations in the life of Jesus all of these things come under that category and then it says the Lord has done great things for us we are glad 
So at first it's the nation saying the Lord's done great things, and then the psalmist almost agrees with them and says the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now the psalmist agrees with those nations, and he affirms it, and then he expresses just his gladness that this is the case. He says, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now we see here that although the returning party um, arrived in Zion, do you remember when the captives came back? It was not the end of their work, was it? They actually arrived and they had a lot of rebuilding to do. They had to get that temple rebuilt. They had to start rebuilding the city walls. And do you remember when Ezra and all the people were uh, encouraging them? Soon, people from the area started to come and started to discourage them, ask what they're doing, tell them that they shouldn't be doing this, and applying pressure, attacking them. And they got very discouraged and the work stopped. And you can almost sense here the, the psalmist saying, restore our captivity, O Lord, completely as the streams in the south. Now that's a reference to the topography of Israel where you have this very mountainous outback and then you have flat plains and in the winter, if you had a sudden downpour, you'd get these flash floods, basically. And they, they can come all of a sudden, they're very dangerous. People still die from them today if you get caught in one. Uh, they still have them in these parts of the world. But this is what it's referring to. I, I, I believe the, the thrust of what he's saying is that he is praying for a miraculous and sudden work of God that would finish this return from captivity. He then says in verse 5, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. God can work suddenly. We've seen this at different times in church history. But we also know, more often than not, reaping comes at the end of an intense period of labor. This is why God says send laborers out into the harvest field. And just like the farming and agricultural imagery here, Labor can be quite tough. You can do a lot of work before you actually see any results. It's not necessarily easy. You're out in the hot fields. You're doing all these things, and it might be a while until the crops come. It doesn't come immediately. It can do on occasions, but this is not the situation uh, with generally plowing and reaping and all these sorts of things that we have going on here. reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 to 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, I planted... Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. I'm going to just read you a small excerpt from a book now. It just happened to be something that I was reading today. It's a little devotional episodes from church history. And as I was thinking about the whole concept of some people planting, some watering, and God giving the growth, it made me think of just all the different people that you have in your life. Um, I was a firm believer that probably no one comes to salvation without someone praying for them at some point on that chain of, chain of salvation, as we call it. I want to just read to you this devotional. It's called Links in the Chain. And this is encouraging for all of those of us who have had that uh, witnessing experience that didn't go too well, or that, that time where you walk away and you just think, oh, I blew that, that was a wasted opportunity, that did not go according to plan. This is a great story for that. There's a man named Edward Kimball. It says he was determined to win his Sunday school class to Christ. And in his class, he had a young boy named Dwight Moody. And this boy tended to fall asleep on Sundays, but Kimball, undeterred, set out to reach him and went to his workplace. And his heart was pounding as he entered the store where the young man worked. I put my hand on his shoulder and as I leaned over, I placed my foot upon a shoebox and I asked him to come to Christ. 
and Kimball left thinking he had botched that job. Moody, however, left the store that day a new person and eventually became the most prominent evangelist in America. On June 17, 1873, Moody went to Liverpool, England for a series of crusades. The meetings went poorly at first, but then the dam burst and blessings began to flow. Moody visited a Baptist chapel pastored by a man named F.B. Mayer, who at first disdained the Americans' unlettered preaching. But Mayer was soon transfixed and transformed by Moody's message. At Moody's invitation, Mayer toured America. At Northfield Bible Conference, he challenged the crowd, saying, if you are not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? And that remark changed the life of a struggling young minister named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman proceeded to become a powerful traveling evangelist in the early 1900s, and he recruited a converted baseball player named Billy Sunday. Under Chapman's eye, Sunday became one of the most spectacular evangelists in American history. His campaign in Charlotte, North Carolina, produced a group of converts who continued praying for another such visitation of the Spirit. In 1934, they invited the evangelist Mordecai Ham to a worldwide city crusade. And on October the 8th, Ham, discouraged, wrote a prayer to God on the stationery of his hotel, Lord, give us a Pentecost here, pour out thy spirit tomorrow. And his prayer was answered beyond his dreams when a Central High student at that time attended a crusade and gave his heart to Jesus, and his name was Billy Graham. And Edward Kimball thought he had botched the job. I just love that, as you talk about that one man who no one really knows his name, Edward Kimball. He stepped out in faith, and he went and visited this young man in a shoe store, walked away discouraged. Little did he know that millions upon millions of souls would have been saved just through that one link in the chain, that one stepping out experience that he did, even though he didn't probably ever know how well it went. This is the way God, this is what Paul's getting at. Someone plants, someone reaps, but it's God who's causing the growth. And I just thought that was a lovely, uh, a lovely illustration of, I believe, what he's saying here. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. And also, as I was just thinking on this this week, sowing in tears. We know it's often a hard and grueling process. We probably don't know as much as many other people in the world, but we all understand uh, the pressures of doing things like that. There may be no recognition, no praise, not even any thanks, Yet one day God does promise there will be recognition and reward in glory. How many of you saw this week the incident at Hyde Park? Have you, have you read everything? So in Hyde Park they have a place called, it's in London, they have a place called Speaker's Corner, which has for a long time been just a debating zone, uh, a sort of a bastion of free speech where people go and debate ideas. But it's becoming more and more of a place for Islamic extremism this day and age. But there was, uh, there's a young woman there, she's a former Muslim, turned Christian apologist, her name is Hatun Tash. She was preaching there last Sunday and she was stabbed. Basically, a, a man walked up to her and tried to, and stabbed her in the face and then stabbed her a few times as she was on the ground. And you can see the videos, it's all over the internet at the moment. Now, except for the worrying prospect that a young woman, she's only five foot, you know, she's not an intimidating character at all, but she's a bold preacher, can be attacked in broad daylight and the attacker just ran off and the police didn't chase him they don't know who he was and very doubtful that he'll ever get brought to justice. Very little news about it. I found one or two newspaper articles from non-Christian uh, media. I'd like to know where all the social justice types are. Protesting this type of thing makes me very mad, if I could say that. But anyway, if you watch the video, you'll see after the attack, she, she passes out for a little bit. She's got blood on her face and blood in her arm where she was stabbed. And a few people try and pick her up and help her. 
And then almost sort of like the spirit just touches her. She just stands back up and she starts preaching. She just starts telling these, she's got blood pouring down her face and she just starts telling these dear, dear Muslims, as she calls them, look what Allah needs. He needs you to do violence. Jesus Christ doesn't need you to do that. And she begs them to repent. And like, it's a powerful message. And she's doing that like in the midst of what's just happened. It's real sort of book of Acts stuff, if you look at it uh, in the mix. But in the end, she's obviously the one taken away by the authorities, for hopefully for medical attention, but the attacker's nowhere to be seen. I'd imagine that at that moment, she probably understood very well what it meant to sow in tears. But there will be a reaping. There will be a reward for her. There will be a harvest at some point for, that, for those actions. For me, that ends that psalm very nicely. Let's just move straight on into Psalm 127. Now, in Psalm 127, we're looking at the issue of building building houses, building cities, and building families. Most see Solomon as the author of this psalm, so let's read the first two verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labour in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labours, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now, you see, the point I believe he's making here is that we must be totally dependent on God. We must remove all self-sufficiency. And he even says, I think we need to remove a, let's, in our phrasing, probably a workaholic-type attitude that strives after something that the Lord is supposed to provide us. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible presents a very positive work ethic. Historically, this has been called the Protestant worth ethic, and it is huge. The Bible says we were created to work. The Bible also says if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't expect to eat. So the Bible definitely has a very strong work ethic. But I believe here the focus is on those who are placing the pursuit of things that you can get through work, whatever it be, money, jobs, house, all these different things that we talk about, uh, success, top of the pyramid. If you're placing those things as the ultimate pursuit or before the Lord, and you're striving for them, then this is, I believe, what it's referring to here, the vain labor at this time. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering, then we shall be content. Yet, that's not really what I, all I believe he's referring to when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I want to just go into this, that little verse a little bit for you now. So what, is, what does every house have that you need? When you build a house, you've got to have foundations that's it yeah you've got to have the good foundations and often they're the thing that are the most expensive you've got to go down deep and they've got to be done properly or else they will not support the weight of the house now you remember we're going to go back a little bit into israelite history here you remember when the israelites came out of egypt the 12th the, you know the 10 plagues 12th plagues, 10, 10th plague and what we call the exodus happened in exodus 12 it says this verse 35 listen now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. They plundered the Egyptians. That's what happened when they were redeemed out of Egypt. They left with all this gold and all this silver. And that's crucial because you're going to see them use that gold and silver when they get out into the wilderness here. A little later in Exodus... You remember they've been given the Ten Commandments and they've been given these instructions for building the house of the Lord with the tabernacle at this time, building the tabernacle. And then it says this in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 30, verse 14. 
It says, everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. That was a silver shekel. When you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, this is one of those things that I find, I found this fascinating when I first discovered this. Atonement money. So this is a silver shekel that is being paid as a ransom to make atonement for the people of Israel. Atonement money to make a ransom. What was this used for? You find that out a little later in Exodus 38, verse 27. It says, The hundred talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil. One hundred sockets with a hundred talents, a talent for a socket. So stay with me here. They got the silver when they were redeemed out of Egypt. They had to give the silver to the Levites as a ransom and as an atonement offering for themselves. The silver was then turned into these sockets, stay with me, and then where were these sockets used? You find this out in Exodus 26, verse 19. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. The boards were the floor of the tabernacle. If you read through the whole chapter, you'll find out. So underneath the wooden floor that the priest would have walked on, you had these silver sockets attaching these boards together. They were literally the most, uh, the, the thing right at the bottom. You could say that they were actually the thing holding the foundation of the whole house together. Now think about this. The atonement money that was paid as a ransom is the foundation of the house of God. Now this is why when you come to the New Testament, you find this same language being applied to the church, being applied to Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says. What was the atonement price that is the foundation of the church? It's the blood of Jesus. This is why Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed, ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is the foundation to the house which the Lord builds. Now, I love the way that you just find that typified by this concept of the ransom money and the silver that was earned through redemption, paid as a ransom, becoming the foundation of the house of God. Just in the same way that the, the ransom for all of our atonement was the blood of Jesus Christ, and that now becomes the foundation of the house of God. And you find this more, this, you could go into this topic a lot. Do you remember when we looked at the building of the tabernacle? I think we were in uh, Book of 1 and 2 Samuel, and we saw those two pillars that you have as you enter the temple, not the tabernacle now, the temple. There were two pillars. One of them was named Yakin and one was Boaz. And we, we talked about Yakin means he will establish and Boaz means in him is strength. Now they served no structural purpose. They weren't attached to anything. They were spiritual reminders that everyone who entered the house of God would look at these two pillars and reading from right to left as Hebrew does, it would form the phrase, he will establish in him is strength. And this is, I believe, the same concept. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. It's his house, he will establish it, and he will build it. He is the one at the foundation, and he will be the one at the top of it at the end too. That is everything that we have about this uh, subject. I just find it amazing that you, you find that typified all throughout the Old Testament. Now, 
the Lord builds the house. And as a church, I believe we continue to ask the Lord to build his house. This is why you find all this language, you know, living stones in a spiritual temple that's taken from these books of Exodus and Solomon's time, uh, talking about building the temple. This is why it's applied and used that way. And we are to continue to pray that the Lord would continue to build his church. That's what we do. We can pray that for individually, for our own church. We can pray it nationally, globally for the church, in fact. But that is what it means. The Lord, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Let's look at verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, it seems to kind of dramatically change topic a little bit here. We've been talking about the house of the Lord, and then he suddenly starts talking about children. Children are a gift from the Lord. Now, what is why such a... It almost seems like some people argue that this is going to be two different psalms here, but I think the the flow of it is actually quite uh, connected to the previous part. A true house is more than just bricks and mortar. I think that's the point that that they are getting at here. A true house is actually people. And this is ultimately the fulfillment that we see in the church, but it involves the Israelites at this time. To David, do you remember the Lord promised that David would have a house, but he used that term in the sense of dynasty. So yes, he would have the physical house that Solomon was going to build, but it would also be a house, as in you would have a descendant, a Davidic dynasty, i.e. children, who are going to come, and one day one of the descendants of David is going to be the one who the promise will come. The family is here lifted up for that very reason, I believe. A house contains a family, and this is why children were to be considered a blessing from the Lord. And this was an extremely stark contrast to the ancient Near East at this time. The Jewish culture, actually, a lot of people credit the Jewish survival because of their strong family identity and their, their still that concept of being set apart in many ways is why they've survived all the persecution they have. But in this sense, in the ancient Near East, children were not considered independent people. They were considered property of their, either their owners, people who owned them, or of their parents. And the parents could, uh, we have lots of ancient law codes, a parent could kill a child without any repercussions if they wanted to, if they found them an economic drain, or you could sell them and you could use them to make money. Sexual exploitation was a massive thing in the ancient Near East for children. It was expected at certain uh, events and functions and even in exchange for education and all these sorts of things. This is why this is such a radical statement here. Um, And it shows you part of the Judeo-Christian heritage that children and families are the bedrock of society. And that's why we need to have this focus on them. Strong families are the bedrock of any stable society. Unless the Lord guards the city. Remember we read that at the beginning? Now what's in cities? Lots of houses. What's in houses? Lots of families. So this is the, you see the chain of thought that he's getting at here. All of these things are connected. And many studies still show, you could look at I'm talking about sociological studies today, that the home is still the greatest influence on a child's life. As much as they may be trying to change that, it is, that is still the situation. The home is still the greatest influence on a child's life, for good or for bad. This is, again, why the command, there's so many commands about parenting in the Bible. Because we also know that if you look at crime statistics and the success of children, mental health stats, one of the things that will cause these things to spike is what they call family breakdown. 
cost the UK $51 billion a year, billion pounds rather, a year, family breakdown. That's the sort of cost that we're looking at for these sorts of things. And it's tragic. Many of you have probably seen the results of this, either through your work or through different areas of life. Nope, the Bible is very clear. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, and you are blessed if you have them in that respect. Now, we see the call here is the Lord's hand. Uh, Let's go back to the first verse. For me, that's the ultimate verse of this psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, he is building uh, his, his church. The Lord's hand in building strong cities. He has a hand in building strong families. And ultimately, he's doing that for the purpose of building people who are worshippers of God. Remember, these are the pilgrim psalms. It's about traveling up to the house of the Lord. And in the house of the Lord, this is where you meet God. And obviously, we know that we meet God. We have access to the throne room of God through Jesus Christ at any time. He is the one we look to for all of these things. And next time... I'm going to do Psalm 128, 29, and hopefully 132. They all sort of flow naturally together. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.